Jason McClellan, and I'm happy to be here. Do you know what mucho guapo means? Let's move on. It means very handsome. It was a compliment. Yes, sir. I understand that. I I just wanted to make sure, because guapo kind of sounds like guarno, which is... (laughs) Guarno. And I wanted to make sure that you didn't think I was saying you were a bat. No, no. But I I appreciate you clarifying that, and thank you for the compliment, Alejandro. How are you today? Good. How are you doing? Fantastic. Had a great weekend. Yeah, awesome weekend. Yeah, we were, we can tell these guys, we were in uh, Las Vegas seeing Ben Hansen and Ben McGee doing a joint lecture at the National Atomic Testing Museum in Las Vegas. Right. Yeah, it was uh, a lot of fun, and we talked about the museum before. We really like those guys and what they're doing out there with their Area 51 exhibit and these UFO lectures they like to host. So it was great seeing the Bens out there, and uh, they had a decent turnout. I thought the lecture was pretty good. Yeah, it was awesome. Part of the reason that uh, the show is airing a little later than usual this yes. week. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of which, our guest. Our guest is going to be Antonio Junez. And why are we having him on? Again, because the Peruvian Air Force is reopening their UN UFO investigation department. So I think this is kind of big, kind of cool news. So yet another South American country... Uh, doing some official, having an uh, official department investigating UFOs. Uh, Antonio's interviewed some of these people involved with this department, and uh, of course he's very familiar with the South American uh, uh, organizations that have opened up prior. So we're going to talk about this Peruvian thing, why it happened, when it happened, who's involved in the history of Peruvian UFO investigations and all of that stuff to get you all up to speed. So it will be a lot of fun. But before that, we will talk, Jason and I, about UFO news. So uh, let us start with Jason. What is your UFO story of the week? Boy, oh boy, there have been some great ones uh, last week. And um, I hope I don't steal yours, but if I do, uh, you have plenty to talk about. So uh, I have the advantage of going first. I'm going to have to go with... uh, some interesting UFO video, and this is this is some of the best UFO video, in my opinion, that uh, we've seen for a while. The, the, at least the most strange to me. Um, that doesn't seem uh, like a lot of the UFO videos we see. This comes out of uh, from a guy in Southeast Michigan, and he's recorded these what he calls UFO or a UFO orb, and this is at his house at night in a dark sky. There's a very very bright orb in the sky that moves around. It changes color. Interesting uh, behavior by this object. And you see a light shining down. It, it hits the trees below and, and perhaps a, a pond that he has out there. 
And he's not only recorded this once, but on two different occasions captured this mysterious UFO orb um, outside his house. So it's, it's a fascinating video. Go, go to our website, openminds.tv, and watch. We've got both of the videos that he's taken, and he claims that uh, he's, he's getting some better cameras because this, this was recorded by a home security camera. So it's, it's not the best quality. It's shot at, I believe, 15 frames per second, so it's kind of jerky, not really capturing the actual motion that you would see if you were watching it with your eyes. But he claims that he's getting uh, better equipment, setting it up, and hopefully capturing this strange object again. Yeah, typically, you know, with with bad resolution, with the jerky filming, you, you're thinking, oh, there's not going to be much there to determine. It, it could be many different effects. But this orb is so bright, and it you know goes above the trees, below the trees, um, that it is very stunning. It does seem to have a beam of like that's illuminating the trees and the ground here and there throughout the video. So I agree, it's a really interesting video. Now, some people are claiming that the water from the pond is coming up or you can see a humanoid. I don't see right. those things myself personally, but uh, I Certainly agree Certainly not enough you. to determine that, you know, the, right. the, beam, the beam of light that's... And who knows, it's, it, again, it's difficult to make out much from this video and, and determine exactly what's happening. But the light that is illuminating the trees and perhaps illuminating this pond, um, it's hard to tell if that light or, or the the uh yeah the light on the trees and stuff is from the the brightness of the object itself or from a separate beam of light perhaps that it's aiming down looking at some stuff or beaming at stuff who knows but i mean it, it seems like from its position in the sky and the angle on the trees and things the the, the light seems to be not always where i would expect it to be or is illuminating as much of the trees as i would expect to see but again, we don't know if this is a, a separate beam of light or if it's just from the illumination of the object itself. But yeah, there, there are things with the uh, at the base of the trees that sort of, I guess I could see where people are getting this humanoid or, or the water beaming up. But again, this is a security camera. It's not the best quality and it's at night too. And the person specifically wanted to capture the object in color because he noticed that it was changing color. Mm -hmm. So that's why he set it to color mode instead of black and white, which would produce a better image at night. But uh, you've got this low resolution camera with all sorts of pixelation happening. So you're not, you know, it's distorting a lot of the, the light that we see in this video. So I think that's making people see a lot of things that aren't really there. Yeah. And you know, one great thing about posting these is that people will respond, I think it's this or I think it's that. Right. And at least so far, the things that uh, people have speculated, I don't think really fit. I mean, it, it doesn't look to be CGI. It looks real. Um, a, one person suggested today a laser pointer on glass that's uh, in the, the house. And it doesn't seem mm. to be that because the trees themselves are being illuminated. And I think it does look like kind of a beam like the person uh, states. But you can definitely see the trees being illuminated way out there. Um, and he does show a picture. Luckily, this guy uh, videoed the area and put that online and took a picture so you could see what it looks like during the day so you could get more of a perspective of how far things are. Uh, the, the last thing that, I mean, it could possibly be, people talked about maybe another quadcopter that's lit up, but the movement of this thing seems doesn't really match that. It doesn't kind of move back and forth and stuff, kind of like the, the quadcopter videos we've seen lately. I guess that's kind of possible, but it just doesn't seem to be that. So, really mysterious video. 
Yeah, I like these. They're they're interesting and certainly have me stumped. Yeah. So that wasn't the story I was going to choose, although it was Good. kind of between that one and this other one, okay. because we've had a lot of great sightings, and I'm sure yeah. people are happy because lots of times when we talk about sightings, we talk about how it was discovered, what they are. But this is another one. This is photographs that I think are also interesting that I can't figure out uh, what it is. This is a guy who uh, worked for the Navy, the British Navy. This is in England. He was an aeronautical engineer for the British Navy. Uh, he's Welsh, so he's from Wales, but he was uh, visiting Devon, uh, Kingswear City in particular, which is a resort town on the ocean in Devon, which is a county in England. And uh, he took some pictures from the ferry of uh, the town, some pretty pictures, and he got home and he saw some things in the the picture. He said that the cloud, one of the clouds did look kind of weird, and that's one of the reasons he took the picture. Uh, but he didn't see anything. But then later he got home and he saw things. Now, typically, it's like, okay, these are birds or bugs, because that's typically what it is. You don't pay attention to birds and bugs when you're taking a picture. They smear in your film, and they look really weird. So that's what I thought it would be. But then he, he uh, took these two photographer specialists who said these were not uh, any like uh, distortions on the lens or dirt on the lens or anything like that. There's objects. So, okay, so that still plays for birds. But then you look at the zoomed-in images, and especially one of these at this cloud that he talked about looks like a perfect disk. It's so weird. It looks like it has some little something in the center of it. I mean, it's reminiscent of some of these Wendell Stevens uh, photos we have from the 50s and 60s where it seems like people were getting more photos of, of more credible appearing photos of disks flying in the sky. But that's what this looks like. I think that this picture is really cool, one of the coolest pictures that have uh, been taken in a long time. So, yeah, I really love this story, too. It's a good photo, and, and you're right. I mean, there, there are definitely two objects that appear in the photo. One is like a lot of the others we see. It's you yeah. know, blurred, could be absolutely anything that yeah. could, and we, we do expect to be in the sky like a bird or anything else. But the second object, the one at the right side of the photo, is definitely appears to be disc-shaped with something in the middle, like you said, and and uh, doesn't appear to be in, in motion, or at least in fast motion. There's not really blurring going on. So you see that defined circle, circular shape. So I agree with you, man. It's a pretty fascinating photo. Yeah, I mean, like you said, the other one, there's a blur effect, football-shaped. We've seen that before. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this one, I mean, that doesn't, no motion blur, maybe very slight, right. but uh, so solid and uh, very cool image. So some cool stories this week at openminds.tv. And then I guess the last thing I did want to mention was just that uh, we also posted a obituary uh, from Nancy Talbot, because this is kind of significant in that uh, um, William C. Levengood, known as Lefty to his friends, a biophysicist who investigated crop circles, really the crop circle scientist. I mean, when you think of crop circles and the science, this is the most well-known and kind of the crop circle scientist. And unfortunately, he did pass away at the age of 88 just recently. And he's the uh, the L in BLT research, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. He's the L in BLT research. And uh, 
unfortunately, the bee, John Burke, passed away just a couple of years ago. So now Nancy's all that's left. Now it's just tea research. Oh. Yep. So if people can go to the website and read his background and, and all of the research they did because, you know, so much of it is so scientific, it's, it's hard uh, to kind of conceptualize. But I think Nancy does a good job in, in putting it all in layman's terms. And she lays out here just how much work they did, which is very impressive, I think. Yeah, I think so too. Nancy does a great job and it's, you know, she's she's the last remaining one, but I think she's going to definitely continue and continue doing the great work that she does. Right. All right. So thank you, Jason, for joining me once again. As always, Alejandro, it's been my pleasure. Yep. And let's hear what Antonio has to say about the Peruvian UFO department. All right. Well, I think this is big news, this uh, Peru opening, uh, their Air Force opening their UFO department again. And we have a resident expert who's actually off doing some filming in Florida, but uh, on the topic in South American UFO uh, organizations, and this one in particular since it's reopening and its inception. And you're very familiar with all the people, so we decided the perfect person to talk to would be our very own Antonio Huneas. Hello. Hello, Alejandro. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm in Florida right now, <laughs> uh, doing some some other TV show. But yeah, so that's kind of funny. That uh, yeah, right. So how are you? How's the weather out there? Uh, it's um, pretty good. Mm-hmm. A little. I mean, uh, different from. Phoenix, you know, it's more humid here, but uh, it's uh, it's nice, you know. It's good, yeah. good season, I guess. This is the best season for Florida. So, um, this, what do you make of this news that they're reopening their group? I would imagine you probably think it's a pretty cool thing. Yeah, I think it's great. I think it basically um, confirms uh, what I've been saying um, along, you know, for at least the last couple of years, the, mm-hmm. when it comes to official ufology, uh, South America is kind of leading the way. Yeah. Uh, it's a, they, there's a, a lot of countries in South America that have official agencies, and, uh, and now the road has been a little bumpy for some of these agencies in the sense that um, uh, they've been uh, inactive at times because of budgetary reasons or political reasons. But uh, then uh, following a period of inaction, then they get reactivated. That exact, that's exactly what happened to the CFA, you know, the Chilean committee, mm-hmm. uh, which was uh, uh, open in the late 90s. It was uh, pretty active up to around 2002. And then it, it, then it, it kind of took a nap <laughs> for, uh, for a few years. And uh, and then it got reactivated in 2009. And what they did is they brought up uh, General Bermudez, who had been the prior director who already was uh, interested in the phenomenon and had the experience. And uh, and then when it reopened, it, 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 it became much more significant than he had been before. You know, in other words, yeah. I guess they have a bigger budget, they opened a very good website, and so on. So now we see with the Peruvian group a very similar pattern. Well, and, and in fact, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, 
No, go ahead. Ask me the question. I was just going to ask why you think um, South America in particular is kind of leading the way in this, uh, why this is happening out there at this, this time. Because the rest of the world um, doesn't seem to be, I mean, a little bit in some of the European, you know, like France, but otherwise, where governments typically shy away, it seems like we have a... a right. An, an, yeah, it's an, interesting, it's an interesting pattern. I would say in Europe, uh, other than France, uh, it, there's not much happening. Um, uh, it, it, Italy has, the, it does have a small department out of the Italian Air Force. But it's, uh, it's, it's pretty small, and I, d I don't think they solicit like a lot of cases from the public or anything. It's, I guess mostly they deal with pilot cases. And um, England, as you know, closed the, uh, the Ministry of Defense office, and um, uh, that's about it as far as Europe is concerned. Um, I don't think there's too much more going on in Europe, so... Of course, in the United States, we have had nothing uh, officially for, for decades, and uh, that leaves South America. I don't know. There, I think you can. There's probably a few, maybe cultural reasons uh, that the, the the public is more open to the subject, the culture. The culture is more ready to accept the subject. I think there's another reason, though. Um, uh, a public. Uh, it's sort of a public relations reason. As you know, in South America, uh, all the way through the 80s, basically, you had a lot of military dictatorships. And, um, and some of these dictatorships had a pretty bad record on human rights. So a lot of people did associate the military negatively. So this gives them a chance to do something positive. Where you know instead of instead of being thinking of the military and human rights violations, now hey, the military investigating UFOs. That's cool. Mm -hmm. I think that I'm not saying that's the main reason, but it's uh, but it might be a factor mm -hmm. that they they've discovered something that they can do for the public, which is popular. Mm -hmm. Right, and like you said, I mean Jose Lay, who we've interviewed, and he's uh, kind of the the PR rep for the CEFAA in Chile. And uh, he he says, you know, and you would know, you're from Chile, that the uh, society out there is more accepting of the whole topic. They don't make fun of it. It's kind of a reality, and it's something that everybody takes seriously. Um, and so there is no kind of joking around. When people are asked to report stuff, they report stuff. No big deal. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, in, in general, the cult, like I said, the culture is, is, is more open. And... Uh, but this is kind of a new trend. Um, uh, it, it, well, the pioneer, uh, when it comes to official uh, ufology in South America, is Uruguay. Uruguay created a committee uh, called Cridovni um, back in 1978, and they're still in business. And uh, uh, as you know, I interviewed uh, Colonel Ariel Sanchez, who was at one time the director, and he still, even though now he's officially retired from the Uruguayan Air Force, he's still uh, involved with the committee as an external advisor or something like that. And um, and I interviewed him, and um, and that interview was published in the Open Mind magazine uh, a few issues ago. And then, of course, um, 
the, the new director of the Peruvian group, um, Commander uh, Julio Cesar Chamorro. I also interviewed him, and I was also published in Open Minds magazine a couple of a couple of issues ago. I, I forgot right now which issue, but you can you can check that out. And I'm not in the office, so I can't I can't check exactly. But it's a recent issue, and. Um, Chamorro, I had met actually all the way back in 2000, and uh, that's when FIFA did a very important seminar during an international air show that takes place in Chile every two years. It's called FIDAE, the International Aerospace Show, basically. Uh, you know where all the aerospace companies they they showcase, you know, their radar systems and things like that. It's mostly yeah, for business in aerospace and military aviation and things like that. But in 2000, they did a seminar on UFOs, which is an official event. And um, in fact, the, the director of the French group at the time, uh, Japan, uh, Jean-Jacques Velasco, came and was one of the speakers. And so was uh, Dr. Richard Haynes, a uh, former NASA scientist. So that was a pretty significant event. And uh, Chamorro and I believe Anthony Choi from Peru were there uh, attending the seminar because they were making the initial steps to create their own committee. And since the Chileans already were ahead, you know, they had already some experience, uh, they helped them out. One interesting thing that we see in this uh, agencies in South America is a lot of cooperation between the different agencies. Mm-hmm. Because... Obviously, UFOs, as you know, uh, it's an international problem, right? Or it's an international issue. And UFOs, they don't give a damn about borders, right? You can have a UFO that is seen in Chile, and then it crosses the border, and it goes into Argentina. And, uh, and then maybe continues to Bolivia or whatever. And so there might be cases where you need to make the follow-up in the, in the other country. And, in fact, Chile and Uruguay... They, they even um, signed an official agreement uh, for cooperation. A totally official agreement where they will share their, their data and so on. And it, I wouldn't be surprised that we will see a similar thing with Peru now that this agency got reactivated. What do you think, I of think the other these... Uh, I was going to say one of the other suggestions um, as to why they created or reopened the group was competition in that, um, do you think that's the case? I mean, it sounds like they're all very cooperative, so maybe it's more of a case of wanting to work together, but um, I think uh, one of the Chilean uh, ufologists kind of was thinking it could be because because Uruguay and uh, mm-hmm. Argentina and Chile have a group that uh, then Peru felt, well, we better have one too, kind of to keep up with the Joneses. Yeah. I, I think that is uh, that is certainly the case. I think, I mean, at least partially. I think that became especially clear when the Argentinian uh, launched the, their own group, which is still in the in their kind of their infant steps. You know, they still have not. Um, I'm not aware that they have uh, released any any significant results yet. Uh, as you know, you remember we reported that widely in the in our website, and when the Argentinian group was created, mm-hmm. and which was a couple of years ago. And um, maybe two years ago, maybe less. And I think there was clearly a case where the Argentinians look at the map and they saw that the Uruguayans have an agency, 
the Chileans who are kind of all rivals, you know, they have an agency. The, the Peruvians kind of kind of have an agency because at that time the agency was a, a bit dormant. Uh, the Brazilians don't have an agency per se, but they do have guidelines. We've reported this on the Open Minds website too, you know, and in the articles. Uh, the Brazilian uh, Air Force, uh, like I said, they don't have an agency, but they do have procedures, sort of similar to what the British had. In other words, there's a questionnaire, and uh, and then the data, you know, gets uh, gets gets filtered and so on. But there is a pressure too in Brazil to 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 do a little bit more, you know, just n not just have procedures, but to actually create a real agency that they can do investigations. So the Argentinians saw the map and they saw that all these countries, you know, their neighbors and rivals, they all have beautiful agencies and we got nothing. So they decided to fix that problem and they created their own agency. So yes, there is a little bit of that, and um, and it, which is kind of interesting, right? Where where uh, UFOs used to be a nuisance, right? I mean, it, it, in, in historically, especially in the United States and. It, and even in, in South America too, in the old countries, you know, it was it was a, a public relations problem for the government and for the Air Force. And now in South America, we see that instead of being a nuisance, now it's become a positive thing. It gives them good PR instead of bad PR. Well, and you touched on it a, a little bit earlier, but uh, I did want to talk about because you're definitely familiar with this, as you've uh, interviewed tomorrow, um, how their organization started. So you talked about how you met Chamorro in 2000, which I believe is just prior to their group opening, and I, like you said, exactly. it's because they were looking it's into opening it. So how did exactly. that all come about? Well, basically, at that time, Chamorro already had been given kind of instructions to explore, let's say, the, the, the um, how to open this agency. So that's why they went to the Chileans. They also uh, received some cooperation from Spain because Spain, in the past, too, the military has, has investigated UFOs, and they do have some kind of procedures as well, although we haven't heard much from the Spanish Air Force recently. But in the, in the 90s, they were quite active. And um, then they launched their, their office, which was basically... Uh, the, the parent office is called DINAI, which is the, basically the aerospace... Uh, branch of the Peruvian Air Force. So this is kind of so, unique. I guess in, in America, that might is, would that be similar to Space Command? Yes. Okay. It would be equivalent. Yeah. So we see that different countries have to do it differently. Uh, like in, in Uruguay, directly through the Air Force. Uh, well, in Peru, through the Air Force, but through the aerospace component. In Argentina, I guess it's straight through the Air Force. In, uh, in Chile, it's uh, through the Civil Aviation Agency, so it's it's more civilian, even though the Civil Aviation Agency is connected to the Air Force. And Bermudez, of course, is an Air Force general, but retired. And um, so they, they launched the Peruvian Air Force uh, group, and I think it was in 2001. Then they, very shortly after that, they had a very big case, which is known as the Chulacana incident, mm -hmm. Um, uh, which was discussed in my in my interview with with uh, with Chamorro uh, in detail. It was a very interesting case. That particular case was investigated by Anthony Choi. Yeah, could you summarize and, uh, that one for us? 
Well, basically what you had on that case is a very long videotape that was taken by an official cameraman from the municipality of this, of this city, which is in northern Peru. And uh, uh, well, there were several incidents, too. Now, unfortunately, the video was never released, so I never seen the video. I've only had some, some clips, some brief clips. But for some reason, you won't find this video on YouTube or anything. And, uh, but, it, but certainly the Air Force had it, and they investigated the case, and um, they concluded it was real. It was, it was the first in-depth uh, investigation done by the Peruvian uh, military ever, apparently. And um, then, for some reason, uh, usually it has to do with maybe change of government, and then a new government comes in, and, you know, then the, the heads of the departments get changed and bureaucratic reasons or whatever. Uh, then the agency went kind of dormant for a few years, the OIFA. And, but as Chamorro explained to me in the interview uh, that we did, and this interview was conducted during the World uh, Forum in, in, in Foz Iguazu in Brazil last December, um, he said it was very important that even though the agency was not active, it was still in the um, organizational chart of the Air Force. Hmm. So it was basically inactive but not terminated which was the same thing that happened in Chile with CEFA, you know, because that way, you know, when they create these agencies in South America, they actually pass a law. There is an actual law to wow. create an agency. So I guess to terminate an agency, maybe you have to also create a law. I'm, I'm not sure of the legalities there, but if an agency is terminated, then means that you're going to have to create a new law to launch a new agency. But if the agency is just sort of dormant, then you just reactivate it which dormant means basically budget, you know, means that, 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 and even when they're dormant, they're not completely, I mean, they still have maybe one guy part-time or something like that, but mm -hmm. they don't have certainly the resources to go around the country and follow up cases and all that. Gotcha. So that's, yeah, that's basically, I believe that the one in Ecuador, people keep referring to it too, but I believe that that one is kind of dormant too. I have not seen. And the one in Ecuador was a little different. It was a kind of unusual because the one in Ecuador, uh, I think the name of it is Faithful, uh, they actually put a civilian ufologist uh, who's sort of the equivalent of Jaime Maussan in Mexico. So that was very, <laughs> because he's the one that did the lobby to create agency. I, I believe that, but I believe that maybe the military weren't too happy with that situation. So it was a bit awkward mm -hmm. to have a civilian guy, but not a scientist. You know, maybe that they would have gone along with. But to have a guy who's very kind of sensational in his approach, with but the, he had a connection. He had the connection with the Ecuadorian president, and so he's the one that got it started. Yeah. So the, this organization is called OIFA, and uh, I think mm -hmm. you know what the whole acronym stands for. Uh, the acronym means uh, Office for the Investigation of Aerial Anomalous Phenomena. Mm -hmm. And uh, it yeah. also says that it, this is, they're going to work in conjunction with um, Peru's National Commission for Aerospace, CONIDA, which I would assume is similar to, to NASA. Yeah, they, that they probably is a civilian. Binane mm -hmm. would be the military, and uh, this would be probably for the ones in charge of, 
communication satellites, those sort of things. Is that new, that or did they always work? Uh, no, uh, well, I'm not sure. I, I, I there, I'm not, I'm not sure what was the relation in the past. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that agency has existed, existed for a number of years. Yeah. Although, you know, I'm sure Peru doesn't have a big space program. Obviously, they wouldn't have the, the resources. But most countries, you know, at least have a, a communication satellite or something like that. Yeah. Or they might, or they might do some some research in conjunction, you know, with NASA or other other mm-hmm. agencies. So that's good that they do that. But that I'm not surprised, though, because normally when you have an official agency, uh, and this this would apply to just about any country, then uh, once you have an official uh, agency, then you know other departments in the government are supposed to cooperate with you. Mm-hmm. You know, since you are part of the government, right? So. Whereas if you are a civilian, you know, maybe they'll cooperate with you if you have developed some personal relationship or something, but it wouldn't be on an official capacity, right? Right. But if you, if you have an official agency, it is one of the things that Bermudez also got when, when, when he was reinstated uh, to make sure that, um, that CFA would have representatives from each one of the uh, military branches and they have a, a, an external committee of experts, uh, which uh, includes uh, prominent scientists from various uh, uh, universities and so on. Yeah. Because then it's much easier, right? If you have an official agency and you call a university or whatever, then it, that takes away the stigma that ufology may have, right, for some of these academic types. Right. So our interview that you have with tomorrow is in the June-July uh, issue of this year, 2013, uh, of the magazine. And he is a retired commander with uh, the Peruvian Air Force. Um, when OIFA started, was he active? Uh, yeah, he was active at that time. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I met him, he was active. And then he retired, uh, I'm not sure when. Maybe around 2003 or something like that. Once, once he left, um, once he left Oifa. Uh, but I'm not surprised. I mean, because again, in Chile, for instance, Bermudez, he's retired too, right? So, right. and uh, this is the other interesting thing that it's, and it's, this is very interesting as when we compare to the history of ufology in the United States, where in South America, these agencies, because. Uh, you know, a lot of these countries, they don't have the same amount of resources that, you know, let's say Europe or the U.S. would have. They don't have very big budget. So uh, they have maybe a couple of officers or something who are in salary. So what they did, and this was a model that was invented by the Uruguayans, who were the pioneers on, on this uh, front of uh, official ufology in South America, is they bring volunteers from the public, from civilians. Mm. So, and these civilians are very happy to cooperate uh, for no pay, but it, it gives them a, you know, they can further UFO research in an official capacity. Mm-hmm. So that was a model that was created with, by the Uruguayans, and then it was done by the Peruvians as well. In my interview with Chamorro, he explains that, that it was partly thanks to, the, to all these volunteers that they had uh, who they were able to, you know, to do a lot of, or investigate a lot of cases and things like that. In Chile, we don't see exactly the same model where they don't have volunteers, but they do have very cordial relationships, though, with the, with the civilian ufologists. 
Mm-hmm. So if they need, let's say, some case happened in some place in remote in Chile and there happens to be ufologists there, uh, they can cooperate with it. But I guess in Chile, Chile is a little bit maybe richer as a country, so maybe their agency has has better resources, so they don't need to bring volunteers. Mm-hmm. And the great but, thing about Chile is that they still do uh, work in cooperation with uh, the civilian UFO groups. They do. They all do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is very different from um, the history of, 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 of Blue Book, let's say, and the American uh, UFO groups, right, or that period, like uh, NICAP or APRO, where the, the relationship between Blue Book and, uh, and the civilian groups was very antagonistic. They were always mm-hmm. kind of fighting. And, uh, and in, in the old days in South America, even though there weren't many official agencies, but there were occasionally some cases where the military got involved, there was some, also there was some antagonism. And so was in Europe in the old days. So that's another interesting model that has been yeah. created by, by South seems, America. In England, uh, it's kind of similar to here, although I, I know with uh, the Cosford case, one of the big cases in the 90s, that Nick Pope worked on, worked on. He said he did get uh, some cooperation and did work with uh, Bufora, their British UFO agency out there. But he right. did say that that was that was uh, an, a one-off, and typically they they didn't get along very well with the groups. Well, and he admits that they were spinning things and trying to um, bring less attention to the topic anyway. And France seems to be a little skittish in that area, too, in that they want to remain credible. So, uh, like, for yeah. instance, when we reported on them uh, working together with MUFON, they were very, very careful in the wording um, to make sure that they didn't seem that they were too closely associated. Yeah, I think in France when they created Japan, which was back in 1977, there was a little bit of an effort to reach civilians, because I remember they sent like a letter to all the civilian groups. But uh, then, after a while, I don't think they had such good experiences. And that, well, part of, part of the problem there, as you know, is that sometimes, sometimes the civilian groups are more solid, you know, and they have a better scientific basis, and that, that will work fine But uh, in any country. But then other times, some of the civilian groups, um, they tend to get a bit um, too sensationalist, you know, or too conspiracy-oriented or whatever. And then once you get in that, uh, that kind of line, uh, then, then official governments, they don't want to have anything to do with it. So. Or there might have been cases, too, where the civilians were using their connection with the official group to also promote themselves. Personally, right. you know, saying, well, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm working on an official project or whatever. Yeah, so, that's always a danger, huh? That's always a danger. So you can, you can understand that if you're running an official group, yeah, you want to be a little careful, you know, because then if you get associated with someone who's not too credible or whatever, then, then you will be criticized, you know, your agency will be criticized. Right. Um, Chamorro, then, he seems to be into the topic. Was he into UFOs when the group started? Was that something that happened later when he, he saw the good cases? What is kind of his interest 
Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right that he's interested in that. I think it's an excellent choice for the deny to bring back because I think that's something that they learn to some of these agencies. Occasionally you have people who are not interested in the phenomenon. You know, they're just a colonel or whoever, and he gets orders. Now you're going to do the UFO department, so okay, you do the UFO department. This happened in England, too, with the Ministry of Defense. Uh, but the guy doesn't have his heart in it. So then, therefore, he'll do a half half good job, you know. He'll do whatever he has to do, but he, he he's really not motivated. But every so often, there are people in different official departments that really become interested in the phenomenon. And that was the case of Nick Pope in England and Bermudez in Chile and now Chamorro in Peru. Chamorro, uh, his interest in UFOs goes all the way back to the famous incident of Commander Santa Maria in, uh, in uh, 1981. Uh, you know, remember the, 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 the Air Force pilot that shot at a UFO? It's in one of the chapters in Leslie King's book. Yeah, if you could go over that again, that would be for the listeners. Well, this is a very, very important case uh, because it's a case where you have actually a confrontation between a UFO and an Air Force uh, a jet, and uh, the, 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 the pilot fired at the UFO, and nothing happened. And now this was not a little fuzzy light in the middle of the, of the, of the night, you know, in a, in a cloudy day. This was in the morning, perfect weather, you know, totally clear. And, um, but let me backtrack a little bit. This was a very big base uh, in southern Peru, uh, La Joya. It's called La Joya. And Chamorro uh, was there, too. So he was a witness to this incident, not, in, not as a pilot in the air. He was just a, a, like a second lieutenant or something. He had just basically been graduated from the Air Force Academy, and that was probably his first, uh, his first assignment. And what, the, what he told me is that uh, in the morning, they would assemble all the personnel of the base. He said there were like 2,000 people there. And because that's when they would give the, the orders for the day. You know, like uh, Battalion C, you're going to go do that. Uh, you know, this other detachment will do that, whatever. So they assemble the whole troop, and the commander of the base gives them instructions. So what are, what are going to be the actions for that day? And then the whole troop was there when the, this UFO appeared, right? And this is a very restricted base. Uh, it's totally restricted airspace. Now, initially... They didn't think this was a UFO. They thought it was a, a maybe something to do with spies or a, or a balloon. Uh, certainly, Santa Maria thought it was a balloon, and but even even but it was not a balloon that they had launched. So they became concerned, and they scrambled a, a Sukhoi uh, jet, which is a Russian-made jet. The Peruvians have always bought weapons from the from the Russians for some reason, even though they're not communist or anything. It's just a business relationship that they had for military hardware. And uh, they chose Commander Santa Maria because he was known as a marksman. He was uh, supposed to be a very good shooter. So he goes up in the air. He still thinks it's a balloon until he gets closer to the object. And then he realizes this is, is definitely not a balloon. Then he shoots all his ammunition. I, I, I forgot the details right now, but he 
shoots the hell out of this thing. It's daytime. This object is huge. I mean, if it was any kind of balloon, it would have definitely been hit. Nothing happened to the UFO. So I guess he was out of ammo. He was out of fuel. He had to go back and, and land. And the case was remained secret. Uh, it was not at all reported in the Peruvian press. But what happened? That a few years later, it actually got released through American documents. Uh, it was a famous document from the um, Defense Intelligence Agency, which discussed this case. Now, the first version of this document, uh, it was heavily censored. It was very redacted. It basically just said that at a, at a Peruvian Air Force base in the south of Peru, there had been a UFO incident. They had scrambled a plane, and uh, the UFO... Uh, and the plane, I think it did mention that there had been the UFO had shot at the plane without results. But it was only like a couple of lines, sentences. The rest of it was, was censored. Uh, probably because they were trying to protect, you know, their source, I guess. It's obviously that the Americans had a, had a, had an asset there, had some of, some, probably some Peruvian officer who was operating with them. But then a, a few years later, they did, and this has happened, you know, most people are unaware of this, but this has happened with other American documents where the initial document is heavily redacted, but then a few years later, some of those paragraphs do get declassified. So the later version of this American document, it, was, um, it, it had much more details. And, um, well, there you have it. I guess initially, they, I guess then what happened is, so the case, the case got released through the American FOIA, not through the Peruvian sources. Mm -hmm. And I guess once, the, and that document became pretty well known, and it's mentioned in books by Timothy Good and others. And, um, and I guess that's why eventually the Peruvians realized that there was no sense of keeping the incident secret since it was already known even though it got released not by them, but by, by the Americans. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, that Chamorro was really interested in. Uh, well, Chamorro was basically a very young officer, so he's not mm -hmm. a case that he investigated or anything, but he was there. He was there. So he was, he was in, the, in that 2,000 troops that were aligned that day, you know, when the instructions for the day were given. Mm -hmm. He was one of them. So he saw it. And then, of course, when he became part of the OIF and all that, yeah, he did look into the case. And uh, so, he, so when he was brought in, yes, he was already interested in, in the phenomenon. And he knew that it was real because he himself had, had, had seen, uh, had, had been one of the many witnesses in one of the most famous incidents in, 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 in the history of Peru. Mm -hmm. that, that La Jolla case is definitely one of the key cases in, in Peru. So he, Chamorro, was not a main protagonist, but he was, he was there. He was part yeah. of it. Where did OIFA get to investigate some um, decent cases? Um, I don't think they investigated too many old cases, because they probably were more busy and not trying to document recent cases. But um, I, I'm, I'm not sure. The one thing that never, that the Peruvians are behind uh, other countries in South America, like Brazil, and even Argentina now is making some efforts. And, and certainly Chile has uh, this thing known as the Transparency Law and the CFAA website, actually. The only, of all the South American agencies, CFAA is the only one that has a real active website where they actually release material. And they, you can even listen to the air traffic communications between pilots and 
control tower and things like that. But in Peru, there is no UFO um, documents have been released, to my knowledge. So I know Anthony Choi was making an effort to get that going a few years ago. But mm -hmm. uh, hopefully this will happen now. Uh, certainly in Argentina, there's a, a similar process going on now with Sephora for the, for the release of Argentinian documents, because in the past, Argentina did have some committees too. And... Um, and now the, the Air Force is trying to cooperate. The problem is that a lot of these documents are, seem to be lost, and, not, um, and not, not because of any malicious reason. It's just that these committees happened a long time ago, and the files are, have been misplaced or missed, or maybe, maybe some of the members of these old committees took the files personally with them, you know, Nobody knows exactly. So, mm -hmm. but I, and some documents have been found, but very few. The only country that has, um, I mean, other than Chile, but uh, the country that really has been a real official policy of releasing documents is Brazil. And in Brazil, the documents get released uh, as part of the procedures, and then they get sent to the National Archives. Mm -hmm. And they're not posted officially, by the Brazilian government, but once they're released, then civilians can post them. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like uh, OIFA kind of, that's why they went dormant, is that they, they kind of started because of uh, some cases, but then uh, they didn't seem to get many cases and kind of went dormant. It right. seems like uh, it, the, when they open and close, is very driven by uh, cases that get public attention. Yeah, it's a combination. It's a combination of maybe political, bureaucratic reasons. Like usually when the gate closes because there's a change of government and when there's a change of government, maybe there's a new head of the Air Force and maybe that new head of the Air Force is not as interested as the previous head, you know, those kinds of reasons. But certainly the, the main fuel for any UFO investigation anywhere in the world where official or not, it's cases, right? So if you have a lot of hard cases and, and these get reported in the, in the press, uh, then there's pressure. Then there's mm -hmm. pressure to do something. Right. Which is, I think that, that was part of the reason in Chile, too, when they reactivated the Chilean uh, CEFA because they were suddenly they were having a new, a new rash of cases, uh, many of which involving pilots and all that. And so mm -hmm. since... They did have this agency taking a nap. They just reactivated it, and that happened in 2009. Uh, I think it's significant when they bring back an officer who is already knowledgeable and open-minded to the, to the phenomenon. That helps a lot. Instead of bringing, putting some guy that is not interested at all, that is just, you know, he just gets, gets tasked, but he personally doesn't care for it or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think probably that's what happened to Oifa, too, after Chamorro. They might have had, at times, people who were not too personally motivated. So now that they decided to reactivate it, they brought the, the right guy, you know, they, they, who was the yeah. original founder of the agency, and, and he's into it, and he has experience. Mm -hmm. When you talk to him, did he share, like, his views on, you know, what he thinks the nature of the phenomena is? Yeah, uh, yeah. He uh, Chamorro is also becoming, in, uh, especially in the period where he became, he went back to civilian life. He 
is very interested in the possibility of um, uh, UFOs or whatever extraterrestrials in in the in the indigenous uh, history of Peru, mm. and uh, and that and it's interesting that in in the website story that you you published in our site, you mentioned right that there that there was that the launching of this agency uh, included a lecture on the Nazca line. Mm-hmm. Uh, because obviously, hey, Peru is one of the countries which, uh, other than Mexico, Peru and Mexico are the two countries in Latin America that have a, a very, very rich uh, historical civilizations. Uh, in Peru, of course, you had the Incas, and prior to the Incas, you had Chihuanaco, and then, of course, you have the Nazca culture, which is a different culture, and which did, did these mysterious lines, right, that nobody knows. Uh, what they were for. Uh, I mean, archaeologists have been debating that for years. And, uh, but the lines are a fact, and they go on for miles and miles. And, uh, and the interesting thing about the lines is that they, uh, in order to really see them properly, you have to fly. Mm-hmm. So that's why, uh, beginning with people like Von Daniken or whatever, they brought the idea. Uh, obviously, they are not landing strips. That's a misnomer. Uh, yes, there, you can find occasionally some lines where, which are usually the ones they show in pictures, where it appears that you could land. But that would be for like a sort of an old-fashioned DC-3 plane or something, you know. So they're not, they're not the landing strips. That, that doesn't make sense. But still it's the mystery. Uh, why did they do them? Uh, there have been many theories. Uh, one is with some kind of star map or or whatever. There are different theories. But the fact is that to see them properly, you do have to fly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, sh- it would be shocking. I mean, and maybe you can give some perspective on if it's really that big of a deal there. But it would be extremely shocking here if all of a sudden Air Force Base Command, which is extremely secretive, uh, said, well, we're going to open up uh, a UFO investigation group and uh, their first event is going to be a meeting where we're going to have someone talk on the Nazca lines and extraterrestrials. Right. I mean, yeah, and, I mean, yeah, doing that, that would be like, whoa. <laughs> right. It, it, it would not happen here. Uh, maybe in the future it will, but uh, somehow the dynamics, the cultural dynamics are, are totally different. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, now, one thing that Chamorro told me when he was uh, investigating, you know, uh, UFOs, with uh, Oifa or even later personally, because even after he retired from the Air Force, he, he, kept, he continued to be an ufologist, but now in, on a civilian basis. But he was always friends with the people still at the Air Force, so they would mm-hmm. give him tips and things like that, you know. Or when they needed someone with experience, they would call him because they knew that he was knowledgeable. And one of the things he, he told me is like whenever he had traveled widely throughout Peru, right, through his life as an Air Force officer and so on, he said that whenever you would go to the areas of Peru where the indigenous people live, in the, which is a large part of the Peruvian population, uh, uh, for these people, the descendants of the Incas, you know, who speak, uh, they have their own language called Quechua and so on, they took UFOs as totally natural. For them, this was part of their culture. And, uh, and so what he realized is that probably often these people would maybe 
have experiences and stuff like that, but they wouldn't even bother to. Why bother to tell the white men, right? I mean, we know they're real, you know. <laughs> it was just that 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 was that, you know. Unless unless you you develop a a relationship with them, you know, and they and you and you prove to them that you're trustworthy or something, and then maybe they'll tell you some stuff. Mm-hmm. So and did in I know uh, Chile had talked about how they do Sefaad, um Jose Le seemed to be a, a bit careful and that they do have their critics um, and skeptics uh, uh, and some that they do have to be careful of. Uh, is, is the same true of Peru? I mean, uh, of course, out here there's a lot of skeptics. The scientific community is very skeptical. Um, a lot of debunking happens. Yeah, what about in Peru? Are, are they less critical and more open-minded, or are there still critics out there? I would say they're similar. Um, in my experience in South America, what I discovered over the years is that actually the, the governments, I mean the military and the media and the general public are all far more open-minded uh, than in the United States for sure. Mm-hmm. But the one part of the South American societies that tend to be very skeptic and kind of standoffish is the scientific community mm-hmm. for some reason. All other aspects of society, they tend to accept uh, that this phenomenon is real and probably extraterrestrial, whatever. But when it comes to the scientific community, they're much more careful. And yeah. they tend to be more critical, historically. Now, the movies in Chile, the CFAA, they've tried to work with them by creating these committees of experts from the university. So they brought them in. Um, we'll see what, what happens in Peru. Yeah. Yeah, I think an example of, of, like you're saying, their Air Force being a little more open is that it was a colonel uh, who's a director of Dene who was the one making all the phone calls to the other branches of the military and to the media uh, alerting them to the relaunch of um, OEFA and the uh, relaunch event. Right. Yeah, this is what I, dis- what I told you earlier. This is sort of the, what they discovered is that they get positive public relations on this subject mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to being criticized for things that they did in the past, uh, you know, with human rights and with other issues. Uh, or, or they, like, in any country, like in any part of the world, you know, there, there were scandals too in many South American countries, uh, uh, corruption scandals, you know, with weapons contractors and things like that. That's another bad PR that they've had to face occasionally. Yeah. So, but on this issue... There's practically no flack. At worst, like I said, maybe they get criticized by some some close-minded scientists at some university or something like that. Uh, but other than that, the rest of the society uh, seems, seems to like. So ufology in South America has become good politics, which is exactly the reverse of the United States. <laughs> right. That's funny. And they also mentioned that a partial reason or a reason that they reopened is due to um, an increase in sightings. Are you aware of uh, reasons? Yeah, I've heard something, uh, uh, but I I have not uh, 
uh, followed up too much. So mm-hmm. you'll have to catch with me. In uh, I'll, I'll I'll have to I'll have to to dig some some uh, some some reports, you know. Mm-hmm. But I did hear that there were some sightings. Yeah. Apparently they. Yeah, apparently there were some sightings. Even I heard of what flying humanoids or something like that. Someone mm-hmm. told me about that, but I yeah. don't know the details. Yeah. Uh, but I'm sure that was part of it, because yeah. if there were no sightings whatsoever, I don't see why would they create an agency, right? Even if yeah. it's good PR. But if there's no sightings, it's the fuel for any UFO investigation, right? Whether it's MUFON or OIFA or CEFAR, right? If you've got no cases, then you're no, you know, you may be in business nominally, but you got nothing to study. So you need cases. So what I'll do is I, I, I will contact uh, Commander Chamorro. I have his email, and um, I'm, I'm good friends with him. I mean, I, I, I met him like I said in 2000, and I spent a lot of time with him in uh, in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a very interesting man, and we, we besides the the official interview which was recorded. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time just chatting. Right. Was so there I will, anybody I, at the... I will... uh-huh. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, was there anybody at the citizens' hearing uh, from Peru? Yes, there were two. Uh, there was um, Anthony Choi, and there was uh, Commander Santa Maria. Mm-hmm. So both and of them fact, talked uh, about... Yeah, both of them testified in the South American uh, session. Uh, which of and I represented Chile because they didn't they didn't bring anybody from Chile. I mm-hmm. think at one point it was um, uh, it was discussed of bringing Major Bravo, uh, you know the well known uh, Chilean army. He's from the army, not from the Air Force, but he's the aviation branch of the of the army, and he's one of the most active official ufologists in the world. He even wrote a book called uh, Aeronautical Ufology, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I think initially he was c- going to come. But then maybe his uh, superiors, you know, they thought that maybe this was a bit too much uh, uh, or something. Or maybe there was a conflict of scheduling conflict or something. So in the end, in Bermudez, if I ask you yourself, have, have, have met uh, both Bermudez and Costelay, they're more cautious. Mm-hmm. I don't think they would want to participate in something with, uh, you know, run by, by Steve Bassett and stuff like that. You know, they probably would have thought that that was a bit too... So I think they were happy with me. I kind of became their unofficial representative, you know, because Mm -hmm. I certainly am very familiar with the whole history. I was there when the agency was created, and I had been at their offices many times. So I represented them, but of course, unofficially. But I, and then they had uh, some other people that, uh, well, they did have Colonel Sanchez from Uruguay, but the Peruvian delegation, yeah, was pretty good. And in fact, the Commander Santa Maria, he really impressed the, these uh, former Congress people. I remember one of the women, because he's, he comes across very humble, you know, and he doesn't have any theories or anything. He just tells his story, that I was a pilot and I shot at a UFO. And he right. comes across totally credible. And besides, mm-hmm. his case is proven, you know, and uh, even by American documents. It's not one of these crazy allegations that you hear all the time, you know, in, right. in, 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 in other countries. So he impressed them. I remember there was one of the Congress, uh, former Congresswoman, I forgot which, but it's probably in my article. I think that was quoted in my article about the citizen hearings. Uh, she was kind of shocked. And uh, they, they didn't realize there were cases. Of course, there are other cases similar, you know. Uh, here, Santa Maria is not the only one. 
Uh, one of the more famous ones is the one in Iran with right. uh, General Jeftafari, which was also a, a chapter in Leslie's book. Uh, right. well, at the time, of course, he was not a general. He was just a captain. But yeah. he, uh, very similar, another scramble incident, multiple witnesses, radar detection. The only difference between the Peruvian and the Iranian case is in the Peruvian case, they actually shot at the UFO. But in the, in the Iranian case, the weapons control system was jammed. Right, didn't work. So he tried to shoot at the UFO, but at the time he pressed, when he pressed the button, uh, this was over a Sidewinder missile, it, the, the, the weapon system wasn't working, mm-hmm. which was one of the reasons why that case was, was studied so, so thoroughly, not just by the Iranians, but by the Americans, uh, because it had a lot of military implications. Right. So... It's great, I mean, to see South America uh, taking the topic serious and, and these groups popping up. Um, do you feel, uh, unfortunately, it doesn't appear that it's having an effect um, up north here in the, in the state. Do you think that would be possible? No. Uh, I would hope so, but I, I mean, to be honest with you, currently, under the, under the current political system in the United States, I, I don't see I don't yeah. see it. I mean, our country has become so dysfunctional, politically speaking. <laughs> you know, I mean, remember, that only a week ago, the whole government was closed. So, yeah. so I mean, uh, would you have a UFO department? I don't think so. But, yeah, maybe things will change. Uh, yeah. As you know, uh, what's his name? Podesta, is it? The friend of... Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah. Yep. John Podesta, the, the, the famous right. Uh, Democrat, right, who was a part of the Clinton administration, he, in, he wrote the foreword right in Leslie's book where mm-hmm. he actually is in favor mm-hmm. uh, of, uh, of creating some kind of... In fact, on the next issue of Open Minds, I have a big article, as you know, about the last time that an attempt was made to create right. an official investigator, investigation in the U.S. And you have to go all the way back to the Carter administration when, uh, as a result of, because Jimmy Carter had his own sighting, and somehow the subject of ufology got, uh, became part of the presidential campaign in 76, because he admitted that he had a sighting, and he had reported the sighting, and that got released in the press. Uh, then the White House was deluged by letters uh, from, you know, UFO ufologists, basically, or UFO enthusiasts, and and then they uh, and then he went to the uh, office of science and technology at the White House, and these guys were overwhelmed. They didn't know what to do with this. They had no, they weren't prepared for something like this. So then they passed the ball to NASA, and they requested NASA to consider uh, opening a UFO investigation. But it's interesting that they, NASA wasn't told, you know, I mean, if the president would have said, well, you, NASA, you created your own group, you know, then they would have had to do it. But right. it was just like, would you Ask. consider doing it? Yeah, yes, would it was you just please? A, yeah. Which unfortunately so gave NASA, them the option to say, um, no, thank exactly. you. <laughs> they, yeah, they gave them the option to say no, and which is all the, all the, all the details are explained in my mm-hmm. article. And because we do have all the documentation, you know, all that was released under the FOIA years yeah. ago. And it's, it's still a, a pretty interesting episode. Oh, it's uh, great, and I'm glad you brought it up because, um, like you said, I, I, don't, I don't think people realize even that Carter asked NASA to do this. No, that, no, uh, it's, it's, 
There was deliberation. It wasn't an immediate no way. Was, yeah, was, yeah, yeah, uh, no, no. Actually, NASA did do an internal study. The, the most um, important document of that whole uh, episode, well, there are two important documents. But, but, I mean, besides the letters between the head of NASA and the White, and the science director of the White House, those are interesting, too. But there is an internal document, which was uh, written by a, by a top NASA scientist called uh, Dr. Noel uh, Heiners, or Heiners, uh, where it's called UFO Study Configuration. And it's sort of an internal memo where they, uh, where they, they list the pros and cons of why, whether NASA should get involved in this thing or not. And, uh, and in the end, they, I guess, the cons were bigger than the pros, and they decided not to. But there's another curious document, which is a letter from an Air Force uh, guy uh, to a retired Air Force general uh, called uh, Dowd Crow, uh, who was now working with NASA, uh, but he was an Air Force general retired, in which uh, I guess NASA had requested, because they, if anything, the Air Force had experienced in the PR part, right, how to deal with the foreign letters and how to answer to queries from the public, this sort of thing. So they had, I guess, requested from the Air Force to send them whatever they had on UFOs and how to deal with the public. So the, it's a very short letter, and uh, in, in this Colonel uh, Sen, I think is his name, Charles Sen, he says, well, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, enclosed are the documents you ask, whatever. And then he has this prophetic line. He says, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't have the document in front of me, but basically he says, I hope you are successful in preventing the reopening of a UFO investigation. Right. Yeah. And sure enough, <laughs> this letter was written like a month uh, before, you know, the final, before NASA basically turned it down. So when NASA finally wrote the final letter, and this was the, the head of NASA at the time, Bob Thrush, he writes to the, uh, to the head of the science office of the White House, where it basically says, uh, well, thanks, but no thanks. You know, we, 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 we decided that we don't. We don't want to create a UFO agency. Mm. However, in order to save face, they did have a significant uh, sort of paragraph at the end of the letter where they say, however, the NASA labs are always open if someone brings tangible physical evidence. Mm -hmm. So presumably, if we obtain a piece of, uh, of, a, of a UFO or something, uh, maybe to this day that policy was still applied, you know, and because they never rescinded, you know, that was their last statement, right. where they say, we want to deal with UFOs, but if you have a real piece, we'll, we'll take a look. Maybe we need to suggest uh, Frank Kimbler, who has that uh, possible yeah. piece of a rise. I, I know that at one time, actually, Professor Sturrock, remember, he was the head of the SSD, mm -hmm. um, Society for Scientific Exploration, and he had done a lot of significant uh, UFO research. He actually tried. He used that quote from the oh, letter because really? this is an official document, yes. But the problem is that he wanted NASA to take a look at the Ubatuba fragment. And that's a very old case, mm. and it happened in Brazil or whatever. Right. So he never got anywhere. I think right. he did have still a piece. And so he said, basically told NASA, look, you want, to, you want a piece? I, I, I have a piece. Because that's the thing, you know, in this internal deliberation of NASA, they actually were trying to see if there was physical evidence, and they couldn't find it. 
they asked, they asked the CIA, and the CIA told them, no, wouldn't have any. So here are all the people in the United States that uh, talk about Roswell and everything, but somehow when there was this official attempt, they could not find any, any physical, tangible evidence. The way mm-hmm. they, they used the word tangible in the NASA document. Right. All right. But it's still in, still in the document. Perfect. So, yeah, this is a great uh, Carter and NASA and the almost uh, UFO department there is in the uh, magazine that's just about to come out that we just finished up. And then June, July is where people can see the tomorrow interview. And uh, so thank you very much for coming on and, and talking about that. Uh, it's insightful and uh I don't know, you know, that uh, there are a whole lot of people out here that are as, uh, have as much insight into South America and their organization. Yeah, and even if they know a little bit, they probably wouldn't know personally the, the yeah. characters, you know. So, yeah, yeah I've been sure. lucky that I've been, in, I've been long enough in this field that I've, I've, I've met uh, most of these people. The one person that I have not met, uh, but I finally did meet him in Brazil, was uh, the head of the Uruguayan, Chamo, uh, Sanchez. But now I met him too. Okay. I had heard about him and everything, but I had never had it personally because, unlike other countries, I, I never did go to Uruguay. So mm-hmm. I, I was I was a little I was I was familiar with their agency, but I had never I never had any direct contact with them. So, but now I did, and I Thank and you. I also did publish a long interview with uh, right. with that colonel. So and of now course I also interviewed uh, yeah I interviewed Bermudez as well that was published in Open Minds magazine too uh, several yeah. months ago. Right. All right. Great. Thanks. We'll have a, a great rest of your trip there and a, and a safe trip home. Yep. And uh, we'll see you tomorrow probably. All right. When I'm back in Phoenix. All right. Thank you to Antonio for uh, giving us all the latest on the South American uh, situation. And, of course, you can read more about the Peruvian Air Force and their new UFO organization at openminds.tv, where you can read all of the cool news. And don't forget, you can also go to our YouTube channel and watch Spacing Out, where you can get even more UFO news by Jason and Maureen. And don't forget to go register for the International UFO Congress, the largest annual UFO conference in the world and it's awesome because it's in a beautiful location in the desert here outside of phoenix and um we have some incredible speakers so we've got timothy good in fact timothy good has a new book out so you'll be able to go there and have him sign it and you'll be able to meet him we're bringing him from britain uh and we are going to have a youtube video out in the next day or two with timothy good where we're, we're featuring an interview that we did with him recently and talking about his book we also have Aaron Sagers from MTV. Uh, we've got George Norrie, who everybody knows. He'll be uh, hosting, actually, our Saturday night, so check that out. We have scientists. We have Jeffrey Bennett, Richard Hoover, who worked for NASA. We have Robert Schroeder talking about the science of UFOs. Uh, we've had him on the show before. James Gilliland talking about sightings. Mike Cleland talking about abductions. And, of course, everybody knows Stephen Bassett, and we talked a little bit about this just a minute ago, the citizens' hearing. So he'll be talking about uh, that and the aftermath, uh, exciting stuff. Ted Peters, who talked about science and theology. Patty Greer talking about crop circles. Artie Sixkiller, who's talking about encounters with stars, 
people and indigenous perspectives. So she's talking about Native Americans. Kim Carl's big talking about her abduction experiences. Uh, Kawani Lapsaritis talking about Bigfoot and UFOs or possibly Bigfoot and UFOs being interdimensional. Very interesting. Science, more science with Dr. Bruce McAbee. Um, Jaime Musan, of course, will be there with the latest and greatest from Mexico. We have Robert Powell um, talking about the latest cases with MUFON. We've had him on a couple of times, and of course, he's a research director for MUFON. Uh, he'll talk about Stephenville and show like this new animation that he's made where it shows, uh, according to the FAA radar data, um, where the movement of the unknown object. This is really cool. We have Glenn Steckling, who is the director of the Adamski Foundation. So this is pretty rare because a lot of people know about Adamski. He was a popular contactee. Um, and the Adamski Association essentially owns all the pictures and videos. So they'll be showing some of the evidence in the pictures and videos for his case. You can see what you think there. And I thought our last interview uh, last week was pretty awesome about triangular UFOs. And certainly David Marler, who wrote the book on it, literally, uh, has a lot more information to share, and he'll be sharing that too. So go register right away. Go get the hotel room. The hotel rooms go very quickly. So don't forget that. Very important to do that now. Um, and then also I want to thank, of course, the people who donated the music. So Caleb Hanks for the intro music and the two Earth Minutes for the close. Don't forget, you can find all this information at openminds.tv. Thank you for joining us again on Open Minds UFO Radio. You have a great week, and we'll talk to you next week, people.